Welcome to the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number seven, we'll be talking with Jess Crombie about storytelling partnerships. Jess Crombie has over 15 years of experience creating content in the humanitarian sector. In her most recent role as Global Content Director, Jess sat on the Senior Leadership Team at Save the Children. Now, Jess works as a Senior Lecturer on Documentary Image Making and Ethics at London College of Communication, and as a consultant helping NGOs deliver their stories powerfully and ethically. Jess commissioned and co-authored The People in the Pictures, a groundbreaking piece of research that asks those pictured in NGO content their opinions on both the process of sharing their stories and their final portrayal. Following this research, Jess founded and co-chairs the Bond-sponsored People in the Pictures Working Group, set up to bring about sector-wide change towards more ethical practices in the creation and use of images of poverty. I was wondering if you could start maybe by telling me a little bit about your work. So um, I split my time between being a lecturer at UAL, a senior lecturer at UAL in documentary image making and ethics. And the other half of my time I spend working as a consultant for various humanitarian organisations. And um, before that, I was uh, um, for a long time, I worked for various humanitarian organisations as primarily Save the Children as the global content director. And while I was there, I developed an interest in finding out what the people whose stories we tell um, in the humanitarian sector, what they think about the way we tell their stories. And so my work really focuses on finding out what they what they have to say about that, but then helping organisations to take that, um, you know, to take those findings into account when they're telling their stories. Absolutely. No, that's really brilliant work. And that's it's super interesting. I guess if you could share just a few like of the key findings, what might those be sort of the key themes that have come out in your research? Yeah. So the biggest piece of research I've carried out was in partnership with Siobhan Warrington um, from Oral Testimony Works. And Siobhan and I, um, and that was called The People in the Pictures. It was published a couple of years ago. And Siobhan and I found, um, I mean, it was, we interviewed over 200 people and it was a, a quite a big piece of work. But to kind of summarise it, I suppose we found that people mostly wanted to tell their own stories in their own words. That was really, really important. And we heard this quote from Niger over and over again, which translates as a song is sweeter from its author's mouth. And everyone said that to us in Niger because they all wanted to express how important it was to tell their own stories themselves. Um What we also found out, which was a bit of a surprise to me, I think, was that when we showed the people we interviewed, the most extreme examples of charity fundraising materials, which is often known in the sector as DRTV, which are those kind of minute and a half long ads that you might see on daytime television. When we showed them that and kind of other um, quite harrowing pieces of content, some of which they featured in and some of which um, were, were, were not of them or their community. We showed people a really broad range of materials. When we showed that to them, no one said, I hate this, I wish this hadn't been made. People expressed sadness um, because they are sad, those pieces of content. Um, and, and obviously, you know, they're reacting in an empathetic way like most people do. And so they expressed sadness about it. Um, they also expressed really 
deep and kind of sophisticated understanding of why we would use that kind of content. There was a young Syrian refugee girl in Jordan who said to us, happiness doesn't move people, um, which was a bit sad to hear, but um, is definitely what a lot of people will tell you. Um, and uh, um, but 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 the kind of important thing to to, to what the sort of flip side of that was that not that they didn't want that to be the only way their stories were told and the only story that was told about them. So to kind of echo that famous Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talk about the danger of a single story, that's essentially what people told us. Yeah, that's true. That happened. That is exactly what it was like. That is a true representation of that moment in my life or in the life of my wider community. But that isn't the only thing that happens in my world. It's not the only thing that happens in my life. Why don't you show a broader picture? Uh, so, yeah, so that was the kind of, those were the sort of two main things that, that yeah, that people wanted to tell them story, their stories themselves. And again, we heard very sophisticated things like, um, I don't want to be an object. I want to take the photos. And these kind of amazing quotes that you think, wow, that just sums up all the things I've been saying for the last you know, 15 years. Um, you have these kind of brilliant quotes, but also um, an understanding that sometimes you do need to show need. Yeah. I guess. I wanted to know, could you tell me a little bit about uh, how you how you got into this field? Yeah, sure. Um, so I spent my 20s in advertising as an art buyer and a photographic producer. And um, in my late 20s, I decided that I didn't want to be in advertising anymore, um, even though I was earning more money than I have ever earned since and, uh, and was having a really good time. I just felt like... Um, I, I was a bit bored, if I'm totally honest, and I didn't care about it enough. I had this, um, what I call the cracker gate, where I was doing a shoot for a well-known cracker brand. And um, and we were trying to decide what topping was going to go on the cracker in the pre-production meeting with the client. And the client was um, was getting, was kind of rejecting all of our cracker topping options. Uh, and in the end, out of desperation, I said, maybe you could finely chop some smoked salmon and mix it with cream cheese and put that on top of this cracker. And she turned to me and said, you would never put smoked salmon on that cracker. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I just don't care about this stuff enough. I just don't care. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was the end of my career in advertising. And, um, and I ended up going to work for Magnum Photos as their kind of creative producer. And that was, I suppose, was my sort of bridge into the humanitarian sector, because obviously I was working with a completely amazing documentary photographers. Um, and then, yeah, and then when I left there, I went to work for WaterAid as their picture editor. And um, I, I will admit that when I first joined the humanitarian sector, I did not join it because I really wanted to do something good for the world. <laughs> there were much more selfish reasons behind it, which was that I just wanted to travel a lot. And um, I was a bit apprehensive. Having come from advertising, I was a bit like, oh, everyone's going to be brewing their own yogurt and, you know, wearing, using hemp bags. And, oh, God, it's going to be awful. And uh, how wrong was I? I mean, it was such a cool, it was such a great bunch of people at Waterade. It was such a brilliant place to work. So, yeah, and quite quickly, um, I was I found myself in situations which in which I really quickly started becoming interested in the people whose stories. So I was traveling all over the world with photographers and filmmakers as a director. And really quickly, I realized how uncomfortable I felt with the power dynamics in those situations and how much more the people I was meeting had to say about their situations than they were being given the room to say and 
uh, I decided I wanted to kind of think about that more. So I actually did a master's in critical theory where I looked specifically at power dynamics um, between groups of people, especially in kind of anthropological content gathering situations, which helped me to... I didn't have that much knowledge in that area, so it helped me to really ground that knowledge. And after that, I went to work for Save the Children and basically went on a kind of campaign of getting to change their content, which we did. And they were amazing and completely up for it and um, and funded the people in the pictures research and generally have been really kind of trailblazing in that way. So, yeah, that's a that's how I ended up where I where I am now. Yeah. That's really brilliant because you bring such a different perspective, I think, having um sort of watched the interactions and and been sort of a fly on the wall, I guess, to a lot of those um, interactions between a photographer and the person they're photographing. And I think you probably, I don't know, have a very interesting, quite a different set of insights from your position in that relationship than maybe the photographer would walk away with. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but yeah, it's true. I, I yeah, I, I am able to. I'm so like, yeah, I'm not actually at that moment responsible for for pressing the you know shutter. So you're right. It's it gives me and I and I think the other thing was that I was my role apart from being the director was to carry out the interviews with people. So I was having this very these incredibly intimate and personal conversations with people about some of the most challenging times in their lives, and as I was having them, I was thinking am I allowing this person to tell this story in the way they want? Do they have enough time to tell this story in the way they want? I'm only here for half a day. That doesn't seem like enough time. And there were all these kind of practical problems that kept coming up that made me, yeah, that made me feel uncomfortable and want to change the process of the way those stories are typically gathered as well. Absolutely. And I guess, did did you have any sort of one example as you were conducting this work or one situation that you were like, right, I, I know, <laughs> I know that what's happening here doesn't sit well with me and isn't okay with me. And, and a moment that catalyzed this work for you. Yeah, there are two moments, um, one slightly more dramatic than the other. The first one was when I was at WaterAid and there was um, a woman I met in Zambia who I got to spend a whole entire day with. And at the start of the day, I was there to make a film and take fo- and a photo story and gather case study kind of interviews about water shortages in that part of the world and um, waterborne diseases and the death of children and, you know, and primarily children, but also adults to waterborne diseases. And there was this woman who I met who I spent the whole day with. And right at the start of the day, she um, was telling me stories about, you know, her children who had been ill from diarrhoea and herself who'd been ill and kind of, you know, stories you'd hear a lot in that line of work. Um, and, you know, and she was, um, so and then the photographer was taking pictures of her and then we sat down and we all ate something together and I was, you know, talking to her, asking her a few more questions. And, um, and after we had eaten and we were all kind of relaxing, I started telling her a lot more about about what, how we use these types of images and how we use them in DRTV ads and how we make mail packs and put them through people's doors. And um, and I sort of realised as I was doing it that I just didn't really do this very much. I thought I was running this really great informed consent process, but I, I hadn't really spent, a, I mean, I had shown examples and I'd kind of, but I hadn't spent hour, you know, an hour sitting there talking and she was really interested in asking lots of questions. And, and you know, I mean, this was a long time ago, so this was before smartphones, so I couldn't sort of get at the internet and show her things. But 
but yeah, so I made me realise, I realised I hadn't been sharing what I needed to share. And then after that conversation, she told me a completely different story about how she had actually lost a child to um, a waterborne disease, which she hadn't told me in the morning. And when I said to her, why did you only share this story now? She said, is it because you feel more comfortable with me because we spent most of the day together? And she said, no, it's because I didn't realise what what kind of stories you really needed. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting that she, I felt like I was there in this kind of really, now I feel quite ashamed of myself, but quite sort of traditional anthropologist way, drawing out this truth from people who, who needed to share their truth and couldn't really understand what I was doing. I mean, how incredibly colonial. And now, and, and it was that moment that I realised that you know, all I had to do was to just be really clear and explain what I was actually trying to do. And then and then people could make the, the, the informed choice about whether or not to share what stories they shared with me. So that was the first kind of moment that was this real like, oh, God, that's... <laughs> I mean, and that was um, halfway through my MA, actually, when I had that moment. And so I sort of did an abrupt swerve and spent the entire rest of the MA writing about that incident. Actually, I wrote my whole thesis on that incident. Um, and then the second one was when I was working for Save the Children. And it was at the start of the Syrian conflict. And myself and my teams were on the borders of Syria um, gathering stories from people who were, who were literally coming over the border that, that day or in the preceding days. It was really early on in the conflict. And I met this, we met this bunch of teenage boys who had been separated from their parents and um, were traveling alone. And they, we were asking them what was going on and what they were experiencing. And in those kind of emergency situations, you are just genuinely going in in quite a, a journalistic way and saying, what's happening? What have you experienced? And they were showing us the marks of torture on their bodies and ligature marks and cigarette burns and, and telling us about the fact that they had been tortured um, by Bashar al-Assad's troops. And they they showed us footage on their mobile phones of uh, people being kicked to death on the ground and like, awful things. And they said to us, can you download this footage and take it back to <clears throat> your office and distribute it? Because this footage um, is, you know, this is what's happening in our country. And so we did download the footage and we took it back to the office um, and we didn't use it straight away because we had to verify it. And we spoke to contacts at Reuters, actually, who helped us with the verification process. So we verified this footage and it turned out that <clears throat> most of it wasn't actually taken by the boys themselves on their phones. They had filmed other videos that were existing on YouTube. Now, some of those videos were from Syria, but not all of them were. And my reaction wasn't kind of, oh, these kids are trying to dupe us. My reaction was, wow, like how they totally get that the ligature marks and cigarette burns on their body is not may not be enough to get their story out there. And so they are using all the ways that they understand and have at their disposal to get their story out there. God, that's so brilliant. You know, how can we harness that in a way where we're not using footage of something else? But so we can work in a partnership with them and say, right, how do you want to how do you think you can tell this story in the most powerful way? Because we want to tell the story as well. And so there, yeah, they were the two moments that I think really helped me understand what I was doing wrong and my really terrible kind of, you know, colonial um, you know, lazy way of working that I hadn't just hadn't thought about enough. And then secondly, how the people that we work with could absolutely be 100% partners. And um, and then so the entire of my career since then has been like, right, well, how do we do, you know, how do we actually practically enact that in a way which doesn't transgress power dynamics and is safeguarding, you know, and consider safeguarding all those kind of issues. 
Absolutely. I I feel like just a side note, but I really um, appreciate, I guess, how open and honest you are about like, I hate looking back on how I used to think about that, or I hate what I used to do. Because I think that sometimes we're so afraid of recognizing how bad some of the things or how, how uncritical we were in the past. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that. I think that that's the only way we can sort of improve our practice and improve the industry as a whole is if we all sort of take account and take stock of our own weaknesses in our practice and, and, and use that like you've done, you know, use that to, to inform a better practice. Um, so I just wanted to sort of highlight that because I think that that's, I think that's something that's missing in the photography industry a lot is that kind of vulnerability to own past mistakes and use it toward change. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I would, I, I I would agree with that. Um, we, um, we, when we're teaching, uh, so my work at LCC is running the documentary photography BA that a lot of the first year is spent talking to students about power dynamics and, the power you have as an image maker and recognizing all of how that plays out in your work and for a lot of our students they have this moment in the first year and so for some of them it happens in the first couple of weeks and for some of them it happens later on and my colleague actually who I job share with Jenny Good she has termed created this term critical paralysis where they are essentially paralyzed because they've understood their past mistakes and they're totally paralyzed and unable to move forward and they just stop taking photographs some of them I mean it's really quite hard to get them to take photographs again after this um because they look and what they're saying to you is but what are the rules how do I do this in the right way and you you, you know there aren't rules around it obviously are there and I think you're right it's about I mean, I hope that this doesn't happen, but I'm fully prepared that in 10 years, another 10 years time, I might look back on things that I'm doing now and think, oh, God, what was I doing? Um, But I think, yeah, it's about that constant reflection and awareness, which is really, you know, it's a bit exhausting and sometimes you don't want to do it. But but if you're making work about the most vulnerable people, it seems really irresponsible not to be reflecting on your practice constantly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's something else that, that what you were, what you were describing a minute ago, um, reminded me of, and it, it reminded me of a lot of these conversations that we have, um, about, especially in the development sector, but also in, in the research sector a lot, um, and like academic research using photographs about consent and about what it means when we're working with people in a vulnerable situation and do they really understand the risks and sort of the tension in wanting to empower people to make their own decisions about how their images are used, whether or not they're identifiable, um, but also risk management and, and, and also having a duty of care to those people and making sure that, um, the work that we're producing isn't putting them in a further vulnerable situation, but, but then that can be quite paternalistic. So I wonder if you could maybe give me any thoughts you have on how to navigate that or, or what you think about that. Yeah, it's, um, I have a lot of these debates in the, my work as a consultant around, everyone agrees that consent is important. Um, there's no disagreement around that, but then how it is actually, gathered and what the process is around it, it there is is subject to lots of debate and and it's interesting you know you mentioned this kind of paternalistic there's there's definitely where it plays out the most is in this school of thought where some people think that if a person is particularly vulnerable 
that they should always be anonymized, for example, and their name should be changed. Whereas other people think that by doing that, you're stripping someone of their real identity and not allowing them to speak for themselves. So I've done lots of work in my career, for, for example, with teenage girls who have been subject to forced marriage or um, who basically have been victims of, you know, survive, they are survivors of sexual violence in some way. And you get a 15 or 14 year old girl who has come out of that situation and wants to be a spokesperson for other young girls and doesn't want the same thing to happen to them and is campaigning locally in a really, you know, outspoken way and is kind of out in her community talking about that. But then so you go and get her story, but then you you might be putting that in some major broadsheet newspaper and all over the Internet and that platform is much, much broader. And, and, and you know, the, the debate is, well, when that girl is 30 and she has children, does she want them to be able to Google her name and find out what happened to her? Maybe she doesn't want them to know the full detail of what happened to her. And and so and the argument is, right, well, let's protect her by even though she she doesn't know what she doesn't know yet. And I have to say, I don't have a, a totally formulated position on that. I think I think it is about a spending as much time as you possibly can and I don't think oh it's a rush situation we don't have time is a good enough excuse because I've spent years and years and years all over the world and in like post earthquakes and in conflict situations I know that you can make the time if you really want to you will gather less stories it's true but you can make the time so the first thing is to make the time to to make sure that the person you're talking to really understands what it is you're doing there and why you're doing it and the and the you know you'll have when we did the people in the pictures there were people who came back afterwards who said to us oh, I said you could use it online, but but I didn't realise it would go on Al Jazeera or I didn't realise it would be on Facebook in my country. Um, and so, you know, we hadn't really, in that case, explained to them that if it goes on Facebook, it's on Facebook everywhere. It's not, it's not localised. So, yeah, take the time to have that conversation properly, I think is the best answer. And then if you're not sure, have a really open and honest conversation with that person about the about this debate. Don't be, there's, there's real fear to say to people who are vulnerable themselves and I don't think putting the bone the kind of burden of responsibility entirely on them is fair but but allow them the a position of power in that conversation by by talking about the dilemma that you are facing because they may have an an insight or an answer that you haven't thought of um or at the very least they will understand what it is you're trying to do in a better way you know and I've had those conversations with people who say yeah actually maybe I do want to be anonymized because, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that. Or, um, you know, I still feel really strongly that I want my voice to be out there, but it's true. I don't really want it being out there on Facebook because actually my mates look on Facebook and I don't, I don't mind that there's older women or those kids hearing the story, but I don't really want my peers to hear it. And, and sometimes they say, no, I really, really want this. I feel really passionate about this. You know, Malala's my hero and I want to be like her and you know, and then it's a different conversation, you know, a different decision making process that you're having. But ultimately, it's about a conversation, a really, really in-depth, honest conversation and about um, allowing yourself the time to have that conversation. That's what I mean. That's what I think now to ask me again in 10 years time. But that's what I think now. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that that was something that really struck me in hearing you speak at the Photography Ethics Symposium was sort of the emphasis that I felt you put in your in your talk on how 
you know, there's almost an expectation that people don't understand or won't get it, but that's really selling them short. You know, like every, everybody can, can understand, you know, what it means to, to be on the internet. If we, even if they don't have access to the internet, we can break it down to concepts or, or communicate it. It's, it's, it's on us to communicate that effectively. Um, but everybody can understand everybody has that capacity. And I thought that was a real, um, important point that came through, I think in, in your talk. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And ultimately, that is what's rooted in this kind of post-colonial paternalistic point of view. And you will have, you know, really well-informed, brilliant people who think, you know, who ultimately are coming from a place of um, great empathy and support and wanting to do the right thing, who will say to you, they can't really understand what you're trying to do, or there's no such thing as truly informed consent. And I think the Syrian teenager kind of example just absolutely busts that out of the water. And for our research, we spoke to these women in really rural Niger who, you know, if they wanted to watch TV, would walk for an hour down the road to a kind of communal TV in a cafe and sit and watch a sort of crackly screen. And we talked to them about all of the ways we use it. And and they said really sophisticated things and really understood very easily and well. I mean, they might not have personal experience of being on Instagram, um, but when we kind of explained it to them and showed them pictures, everyone got it straight away. So... I get why people do it. It's really well-meaning, but it ultimately strips power and kind of agency from the person whose story you're gathering. Absolutely. And I guess thinking again about the the research that you did, um, specifically people in the pictures with Save the Children, and you talked a little bit about the key themes that came out of that. And I was just wondering if you could maybe put that into practical terms for photographers who might be listening. Like, what do the, these lessons that we've learned, what does that mean in practice? I think it means, A, prioritizing having a conversation with the people whose story you're gathering. Now, that conversation doesn't always have to happen before you take their picture. Um, you know, that, that is a school of thought that you shouldn't ever take a picture until you've had that conversation. And that probably is the best thing to do. But I know from my, you know, from my work, there are times when things are just happening. And if you don't take that picture, you're not going to get an interesting picture of that situation. And therefore, you're not going to be able to communicate what's going on in that situation. So, um, but you should have that conversation at some point. Um, the second thing is to get over whatever point of view you have and wherever that comes from that those people can't understand what it is you're doing there and can't partner with you and when I say partner with you I don't mean you know giving them a camera and getting to take the pictures themselves but partner with you in the in kind of in terms of being active contributors to the story you're telling quite apart from any ethical thing when you say to someone I want to tell a story about this you know how do you how do you think I could make that interesting they often will say, oh, do you? Oh, right. Well, I know someone down the road who's got really, you know, who's lived that experience in a way more interesting way than me. Hey, come on, let's go and meet them. So you'll often end up with a better story if you if you do that. So, yeah, that those kind of, I suppose those are the two things, really. It's about consent and it's about partnership. They're the two drums that I spend a lot of time banging and, and think that, and, and it can feel quite intimidating to think about that in terms of your practice. And I definitely, you know, have photographers saying to me, yeah, but I'm a photojournalist. How am I, I don't want to carry a load of consent forms around with me. I, you know, I'd have time to, to do that. Um, and I think, well, yeah, in the moment, in the way you work, you don't have time to do that, but it's about prioritization. And if you, 
what and if you wanted to make the time to do it I bet you could um, yeah maybe also the way that we're currently working maybe isn't fit for purpose you know exactly and again as well it's not just about what's ethically right the right thing to do you're also putting yourself and whoever you're shooting for at risk as well because you know the more sophisticated and the more aware everyone is of how we tell stories and the impact of the way we tell stories the more likely it will be that people will start challenging those and that they could challenge it in terms of writing something negative underneath your facebook posts or they could challenge it by taking you to court and claiming that they never gave you permission to take their picture and everything in between and so it's not just the right thing to do it's also just you know going to it's the best thing to do for everyone, including yourself. You know, even if you come to it from a purely selfish point of view, it's going to be better. So there's a kind of third school of thought, which is around who takes pictures of what. And I definitely support the use of kind of local talent as much as possibly, especially in the humanitarian sector, where, you know, from a purely environmental point of view, flying people all over the world is not a good thing to do. However, I don't support um i'll have to work out to say this kind of in a really clear way but i i don't think that you have to be from a certain group of people in order to photograph that group of people because and i'm not just saying that because i'm a white person and i've spent a lot of my time making films and photographs about brown people which you know has which is something that i think about and and i'm concerned about it's because i believe in the a diversity of views and voices now, what you have at the moment is the is the opposite the end of the spectrum where you only mostly only have white people making films and photographs about brown people. And that's that's not the way it should, especially in the humanitarian sector. That is very, very prevalent. And that's absolutely wrong. But but I don't think but so I think you need to kind of swing in the other direction. But I don't think only having you know, you don't have to be a Nigerian person to photograph a story in Nigeria. You can be a Kenyan person and photograph a story in Nigeria or a Bangladeshi person who photographs a story in Bolivia. You know, I, I think it's about those diverse views, because sometimes being an outsider, you come into that situation and you look at it differently from an in, the way an insider. Now, those two views are both equally valid and important but they, they both need to be in existence rather than just kind of one singular view. And I'm aware that that is not a position that everyone agrees with, but I think it's important to have diverse voices talking about these really important issues, which is not what we have right now, I will stress, and that is what we need to get to. So as a commissioner, which is a lot of what I do now, that's my focus is very much on saying, right, well, I'm not going to send people into situations who are from Europe or America for the time being this is about and actually I have to say I've been doing that for a really long time you know save the children that had been our policy for years and years and years where it was as much as we could um, where we could find people it was about you know nurturing talent in the countries that we worked in by working with the brilliant people were there or if we couldn't find people who were kind of um, experienced enough to shoot the story we needed to experience working out how we could send them as a kind of second photographer on a shoot with a more experienced photographer that they could learn from or and other kind of tactics like that. But yeah, I think that is, it's really, really important to put resources into that. Again, and from again, from a selfish point of view, then you will have talent in those places that you can work with. Great. That's what everyone needs. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that that's a really important point. And 
I guess as well, you know, you said that you're, you're sort of in the position that you're commissioning work a lot now and commissioning photographers. And I was wondering, because this is something that sort of comes up quite a lot, is that a lot of these sort of more ethical ways of working involve a lot more time. And a lot of times I think photographers feel like they aren't given that time. So how do you, from, from the position of someone commissioning photographers, how do you give that to them? And what would you maybe advise other people who are in your position to do to make sure that we're giving photographers what they need to work in an ethical way? Yeah, um, I'll say I don't commission as I still commission, but not as much as I used to. When we were at Save the Children, we used to carry out around kind of 300 shoots a year. I mean, they still do that, that number of shoots a year. Um, A lot of the time, it's up to the person who's commissioning to manage their expectations within their organisation and help their organisation understand that if you spend more time gathering stories, you will get less stories, but you'll get richer stories which are usable in many more places. So a really nice example of this was when we were when I was at Save the Children, we commissioned a story about a midwife called Alice, who was a midwife in Sierra Leone, who had worked as a midwife all the way through the Ebola crisis and um, and had been a midwife before that for a long time, I think maybe 20 years. And um, and she told us that she had that she thought there were thousands of Alice's named after her across Sierra Leone. And we were looking to do a new fundraising campaign. And normally when those shoots would happen, you'd go off to somewhere like Sierra Leone and you'd have, you know, you'd and you'd be expected to bring back maybe 10 to 20 stories. And because you only have a week or maybe 10 days, you are shooting, you know, about two stories a day, essentially. So you're not really spending proper time. And so we persuaded our fundraising teams that we should only make a story about Alice. We should spend the whole week with Alice and we should track down all of these Alices who were in existence, who she had brought in to help bring into the world. And, um, And the story would be about you know, about longevity and legacy and, um, and, you know, and, and about her and the way, she, and we couldn't do that in half a day. And it was quite a difficult internal conversation um, because it was a different way of working. And people were nervous that you're putting all your eggs in one basket. What if it doesn't go right? And what if she doesn't say the things we need her to say? And what if, what if, what if? Um, and we did manage to persuade them and we did it and it was a complete smash hit and smashed all its targets and ended up being used on loads of platforms and then became a big media story. If you got, if you Google Alice the Midwife Saves the Children, there's all of these stories, I mean, all these stories about her. She's such a character and there's all these lovely pictures of her with all these kids called Alice. Um, I think we called it a town called Alice in the end, the project, because um, it was kind of a town's worth of people. So, yeah, it's there, it's about having being prepared to have those internal conversations with people and if you're a photographer going into that situation it's about you know suggesting that that they have those internal you know suggesting different ways of working before this movement this moment we're having right now and before you know the comic relief David Lammy moment those conversations were really hard to have I know because I had them over and over again with really brilliant, intelligent, really well-informed, great people who wanted to do the right thing, but also had massive fundraising targets to meet and were nervous that, and big media targets and, were, and, you know, and readership concerns and were worried that we weren't going to be able to hit them. I fully empathise with that situation. But then when the David Lammy comic relief moment happened, things got a bit easier and there was a bit more interest. But now you're in this moment where you can say, come on, this is the moment to change what we do. Let's think differently about this. Let's 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 not just do the same thing we did before. 
you know, let's not just, you know, get a local, decide that the thing we're going to do is, is only work with local photographers from the countries in which we're working, but basically do the same thing we've always done. Let's really throw things up in the air and think about how we can do this completely differently. And I just think this is this super exciting moment in time where things can really change. I mean, they are really changing. I'm doing work at the moment with a couple of organisations who are really big, major NGOs who are looking at their entire catalogue of communications and thinking, how do we do this in a different way completely, both from, from every stage of the process and in the portrayal? And maybe we just won't release those types of images anymore. Maybe we just won't do those things anymore, but we'll do something different. It's really exciting. So, yeah, if you're a photographer and you're nervous of having those conversations, there's never been a better time to have them than now, I think. Absolutely. Something that really struck me in what you're saying was, um, you know, what if, what if she doesn't about that Alice project, you know, what if she doesn't say the things we need her to say? And I feel like that itself is so telling, isn't it? That, you know, this idea that we need a certain thing from these people to match the expectations. Um, and I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of volunteer communications work with a very small NGO here in Northern Ireland. And that's something that I, you know, we talk about a lot, you know, to what extent is it our responsibility as well to change people's expectations and to change what people are looking for, um, be it in their news or in charity communications. Um, and I think that that's an interesting uh, conversation. And I think it has also something to do with responsible viewership and what are the responsibilities of, of viewing um, certain types of media. And I think it is very complicated, but I think it could be a really interesting conversation going forward. I think a lot of times for organisations, it is about changing their mindset from a what works with our audiences and what allows us to get our audiences to do what we have always wanted them to do and what we want them to do. You know, what's the what's the bound the ethical boundary we can bump up against to do that versus actually this is an ethical decision about whether or not we're going to show those things and we do have a responsibility as a as a an organisation that does educate people about what's happening in other parts of the world, whether or not that is our intention, that is what happens. And that's the kind of mindset shift that I'm seeing. I, I carried out, I can't say what I'm working for at the moment, but I carried out a series of interviews over the last few weeks with um, very senior staff from a very big humanitarian organisation. And one of them, um, a woman based in Niger, summed it up really brilliantly when she said, exactly that this is not about what works and where the boundaries are this is about what is what is what ethically are we prepared to do as an organization and maybe we will raise a bit less money by doing that and this organization is so big that they can be a bit brave in that way but i think it is the big organizations that have got you know they've got more um backup funds and they have got more revenue streams it's up to them to lead the way because for the small organisations who are always right up to the wire with their finances, it's going to be much scarier for them to do that. But if they see the really big organisations leading the way and talking about this and doing things differently and those organisations are open about what they're doing, which I'm you know, encouraging and which they are talking about being, that's how this that's how this shift happens because it's scary. You know, I mean, ultimately, if you don't raise the money, you can't deliver the programmes. You can't feed people and build homes and set up schools and put water projects in. You can't do all those things that you've promised the people, you know, who need that stuff and your donors and everyone else that you're going to do it. And that's that's a really scary place to be. 
but yeah it is that it is that decision it is kind of it is it's a culture mindset shift within an organization i do see that happening though at the moment in a way that i haven't seen it happen before those conversations are being are happening quite openly that i feel like there's been a real swing in a, in the other direction in the direction of kind of responsible communications and what people also say and i think this is really interesting to hear you know is that well actually if those audiences who come in off the back of a photo of a starving child and give us £10. There's lots of research that shows that quite a lot of those, that that audience don't stay and continue to have a relationship with that organisation. It's that kind of emotional that they respond to, but it doesn't build their relationship. Whereas if you spend more time developing audiences to have more kind of mid-length and long-term relationships with them it takes longer and you have to invest more money at the start to do that there's no doubt about that but maybe ultimately because they stay on for a longer period of time they're you know the the kind of the income streams won't be necessarily hugely impacted and that is yet to be seen but that's the theory that I'm hearing talked about a lot right now which is kind of exciting as well. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, that that it's it's you can develop a deeper relationship with more nuanced storytelling, and it makes sense, absolutely. But that's interesting that that can be also reflected in the the donations raised and things and and NGOs. Um, just one thing that I want to ask everybody is, um, and we've sort of already covered this, but maybe if you could sum it up in a quippy sentence, um, <laughs> what does photography ethics mean to you? Well, that's a good question. I think photography ethics for me is about considering not so much the act of taking the photograph as who you're photographing and what they think about the story that you're telling. That's that's the kind of angle that I think about and try and bring to this debate a lot. Absolutely. No, I think that's really useful. Very useful. Thank you very much. And is there anything else that I should have asked but didn't? I'll just say that I I think photography and, and imagery, you know, I've talked a lot about the opinions of the people whose stories we tell, but I've worked in photography for my whole career because I, I do think it's the best way to tell stories. And, and I do think it's important to tell stories from places where something bad is happening or something that I think people need to know about. You know, I really believe that you... I, I don't believe that making rules where you say, let's just not show that, you know, a picture of a child with severe acute malnutrition, for example, let's never show a picture of a child like that ever again. I, I don't subscribe to that. I think you do need to tell people what is going on in parts of the world that they don't think about on a daily basis. But I think that we need to be much more considered about the way that we do it. So I suppose that would just be my... The last thing I want to say that, yeah, I love photography, but we don't always get it right. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photo Ethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode number seven are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Smita Sharma on empathy and storytelling.